0: Welcome to Self-Security Chat Chat 186 for the 18th of February, 2015. I'm Chester Wisneski coming to you from sunny Vancouver.
1: Not as sunny as where I am, Chester. So, to our listeners, if you suddenly hear cheapy noises from my side of the equation, it really has been hot, and unfortunately, when the temperature's up, the crickets get all excited. It's very hard to keep them quiet. So, are you saying the podcast has been bugged? Ha ha ha! I did mention cricket. Do not mention England v. Australia. Oh dear, I just did. Uh, Well, let's let's talk about potentially
0: putting a bug on your iPhone's communications uh, in a way a little different than many of the stories about bugging phones went over the last couple years. This lightning cable, so I guess that's the cable you use to attach or tether um, a modern Apple phone to a Mac, the protocol or the way they communicate has been a bit of a mystery, right?
1: Yes, it has. My understanding is there's a chip inside the cable and there's a special chip uh, inside your iPhone. And so it's a proprietary connector with its proprietary way of communicating. And that means that, you know, it's yet another way for Apple to lock down, both for commercial and for security reasons, the iPhone. So you can't just access any file. You can't just go in and modify the kernel or see what's happening. Um, And a chap in France, by taking his iPhone and the cable apart and uh, doing all sorts of stuff with parts that he didn't have to get from Apple, uh, has been able to build a special version of the cable uh, that actually pretty much lets you do serial kernel debugging. So he hasn't actually got a jailbreak with it yet, but if you're interested in jailbreaking or just understanding more about iOS, seems like you're probably going to want one of these cables.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, his his modifications are non-trivial and included designing his own circuit board, um, which is beyond the capability of most of our listeners that
1: aren't electrical engineers. The chip that he had to remove from inside his iPhone, it is slightly smaller than 2.5 millimeters by 2.5 millimeters, and it's a 36-ball grid array. So there's six by six little balls underneath to connect it. So for American listeners, that chip that he desoldered is less than one hundredth of a square inch. I guess you've got to be pretty committed to want to put your iPhone at that sort of risk. Well,
0: yeah, as long as the iPhone has been out, for there to be news like this suggests how difficult it must be, because somebody would have done it by now, because it is a super convenient way to get extra visibility into how you may break uh, Apple's boot process. So... Folks that are committed to doing this may be interested in acquiring one of these cables, but um, that, that does kind of raise up the whole story of security again, right? Like, Apple allegedly has done this to secure, you know, keep the integrity of the device, and that's why they don't want you to know the good old security through obscurity argument, right? Yes, I guess
1: there are two things that come out of this. You know, firstly, as you say, security through obscurity isn't really good enough, because This guy's willing to desolder this one hundredth of a square inch chip from his iPhone to learn more about it. Secondly, although I approve of jailbreaking and understanding things, I nevertheless would recommend to corporate administrators that in an organizational context, you probably don't want to allow jailbroken devices onto your network if you've got to bring your own device policy. I'd also say if you've got a jailbroken device and your IT guy says, look, sorry, not allowed here. Don't get too upset about that. It is one less thing for him to worry about. Well, and this kind of brings up the whole, the whole argument
0: also about firmware. Um, you know, we've seen this is sort of a firmware type thing. It's allowing you to sort of get into that really deep layer inside of how something boots, how something works, the actual code that runs within uh, a device. And, you know, we had the story about bad USB last summer um and then not too long after that there were some hacking attempts at how you could uh interfere with Macintosh's booting with some Thunderbolt cable uh firmware tampering yes and now we're hearing um from Kaspersky that i guess some of this advanced APT government malware stuff looks like it might have been doing some some hard
1: disk firmware hacking yes i mean the Apple one Thunderstrike that was the one that particularly interested me because basically what this chap did in his research is he used a regular Thunderbolt uh, Ethernet adapter, which has what in the old days, anyone who goes back a bit to old ISO cards in PCs, like an option ROM um, inside the adapter that he could reprogram. And at the time that that boot ROM runs, the boot firmware on the Mac is supposed to be locked already. And he found out that actually that protection was not done correctly and there was a hole. Something similar in that Kaspersky uh, story that, in fact, by modifying the firmware on a hard disk, you've got this malicious modified code that's in a place which is kind of invisible. Any device that has permanent storage that is writable at the wrong time could be a risk to us, whether that's a USB key, a hard drive, or in the Apple case, an Ethernet adapter that you buy for 29 bucks. Yeah,
0: you you can't assume that there's any layer of it that can't be tampered with. You and I have talked about the firmware translation layer that exists in a lot of these SSDs and stuff and the, on the assumption that you can't delete data. That's why we always tell someone, encrypt the hard drive before you write anything to it, because there's this mystery firmware in between that we're not sure what it's doing.
1: That is the problem with firmware. Not only is it something that can actually control the very boot process of your device... And the idea there is you know, if you get in early enough with a rootkit, you can actually manipulate the loading of the operating system itself. Not only have you got that problem, you've also got the problem of when you store data in it deliberately and intentionally, how do you get rid of it without dropping the device into a blast furnace afterwards? Which is why if you know someone who has a blast furnace, don't lose that friendship. It could be very handy. Yeah, I suppose so. I, I was thinking that
0: uh, the more paranoid among us might rush out and get the official factory firmware from Seagate and reflash our hard disk just to be sure it's running something that's known and
1: hasn't been through the interdiction process. <laughs> yes, I guess that story will unfold over the next days, weeks, months, years as as we sort of learn more about who's been tampering where.
0: Yeah, which is why uh, whenever possible you have to assume that you need the security at the extreme endpoints of any communication link uh, for it to be effective. And just like encrypting before you use an SSD, you have to assume that everything in the middle could be intercepted by someone, so you do your best to keep it a secret. Now, uh, Apple also this week uh, extended the reach of their two-step authentication. And very important to point out
1: that it is two steps, not two factors, I say hats off to Apple for using the term two-step verification. If all you've got is an iPhone and you're logging in your iPhone and the SMS is coming to the iPhone, well, it's more like sort of one and a quarter factors or one and a half, isn't it? It's not like two separate devices. They're not as independent as we usually think of things that form two-factor authentication, you know, like a password and a fingerprint. The flip side of all of that is don't let that put you off because I have heard people say, oh, well, it's only two-step verification. It doesn't have a separate FOB. There's no point in using it at all. There are still benefits in not having one password that if someone gets it, it's game over.
0: Yeah, I I personally prefer physical tokens uh, myself for highly secure applications, but uh, that doesn't stop me from using Google Authenticator and SMSs and all kinds of other things, just because that's the option I have. And you know what? I'll take an option over no option. And if they're going to offer me something that's better than nothing, I'm going to take it.
1: The the the, the thing about the Apple story, of course, the reason it was in the news is that they first secured Apple ID. Then after, what was it, the snappening, all those leaked photos, they said, oh, you should use two-step verification with iCloud and then realized, oops, doesn't work with iCloud yet quickly added it to iCloud, and now they're adding it to two more of the popular Apple apps, which are iMessage and FaceTime. So they are making progress. Hopefully, sooner or later, every aspect of Apple's online security will be protected by two-step verification. All that remains is for you to decide that you're going to turn it on and use it.
0: More enhancements to security, d- but depends on whom you ask. Uh, Firefox, uh, the Mozilla Foundation announced Firefox will begin requiring uh, add-ons to be signed um, to prevent malicious add-ons from being inserted into the Firefox web browser, and presumably they'll do the same for
1: uh, Thunderbird, their email client. No, no, Chester. No Thunderbird, no Sea Monkey. It's Firefox only, I'm afraid. Huh. At this stage. That's very interesting. Yes, I thought that was odd. You think they would go hey, we we want our software ecosystem to be protected by having signed extensions, but unfortunately, Firefox only. Sorry.
0: There the, there there is an argument that this is a bad thing by some people saying that uh it takes the f out of freedom or something. Um and that you know not just anybody can now publish a Firefox extension and and I did see a little bit of evidence of that myself already to a degree in that the Firefox store, if we want to call it that, wherever you go to
1: get the add-ons on their website. AMO add-ons.mozilla.org. That's their sort of app store if you like. Their Google Play. So on
0: the on the add-on store, uh I was looking at an add-on on a website that talked about how it could help you automatically identify which content management system a website was using. It might be useful if you're a malicious uh, attacker against a site. It's also very interesting when you're doing vulnerability research. And uh, when I went to the add-ons.mozilla.org, it said, oh, this add-on is no longer available and has been deemed inappropriate. And I'm like, well, I wanted this add-on. I've now had my freedom taken away from me by the Mozilla Foundation. My choice, which Firefox is so
1: fond of pointing out, Yes, because Mozilla's approach is going to be a bit different from what you might be used to in, say, Android. Uh, The deal with Mozilla's approach is that even if you go off market, the extensions still have to be signed by Mozilla. Now, my understanding is they're not going to be making, supposedly making any kind of freedom or moral judgments. They're just going to do it on the basis of security, or so they say. But they are effectively, will be making themselves the sole arbiter. The other thing that they've said in their announcement is there will be no special configuration option and no magic command line switch to turn this off.
0: I think the I think the magic option you're looking for is called GCC.
1: That's got people asking, understandably, so how are developers going to test their code with the release version? And one answer is, well, they can use the nightly builds or their special developer builds. And then that brings the question, well, is that good enough? So apparently there's a thing called an unbranded build, a release build. And of course, so the next question that's raised here is how many people or even companies just going to go, you know, let's switch to this unbranded build and then it won't have that feature and it'll just be compiled out and then all of this code signing lark will go away anyway. So it sort of remains to be seen how well this is going to work, given that the, the freedom loving parts of the Mozilla community don't seem so sure about it. So, I guess this is sort of more predictable. The Big G, the Google,
0: our friends in Mountain View, have decided to acquiesce in their strict policy for the Project Zero project. Um, is it Project Zero project? I guess that's sort of
1: like... Um, major, 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 major. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> they,
0: they, they're they not going to just do 90 days now. If If you can commit to only being up to 14 days late, um, they may give you a little
1: latitude. Of course, the two controversies were, couldn't they have waited a few days until Microsoft the Patch Tuesday came around when they did it just before Microsoft were about to ship a patch? And then a previous one with Microsoft was, it was just before New Year. Couldn't they have waited till everyone was back at work? I mean, was it really that necessary? So apparently, they must listen to the chat Chat Um, where you made the point about the holiday and I made the point about the motor vehicle licensing guys giving me two weeks grace on my license disc. Why can't Google do that? And that's what they're doing. They're going to defer weekends and public holiday 90 days to the next working day and they'll give you two weeks of grace. So it still lacks that compassion element as far as I can see. And I know you made that point very eloquently in one of our earlier podcasts. So there's a little bit of flexibility, but it's an algorithmic flexibility. So I guess if you're really lucky, you might land it right
0: before uh, your 104th day being sort of American Thanksgiving and you end up sliding into the
1: pseudo four-day American weekend. No, no. No pseudo, Chester. Is Friday a public holiday in the US? It is not. Sorry. Bing! (laughs)
0: <laughs> so, I, but but you mentioned when we were preparing for t- today's podcast
1: that um, that's not even itself even concretely true. No, I had not realized this until this announcement that they were getting a little more liberal, is that in fact, that whole argument that says, look, we're taking the politics, we're taking the negotiation, we're taking the special favors for special vendors out of the equation, it's 90 days, or it's 90 days, non-negotiable, actually – We reserve the right to bring deadlines forwards or backwards based on extreme circumstances. So there is still a flexibility clause in there. It just uh, seems that by extreme, they really mean it, because I'm not aware of anyone actually qualifying for extreme circumstances. So maybe that whole jazz bug thing where it took Microsoft a year to sort of redesign login for Windows, maybe that would have been an extreme circumstance. Who can say? Uh, I suspect we're going to find out. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I think you're right.
0: On that note, I'm going to conclude Software Security Chat Chat 186. Uh, but if you're interested and you're in the Los Angeles, California area, I will be speaking at the Southern California Linux Expo on uh, Sunday. And if you decide to come over, you can get a discount if you put in the code S-P-E-A-K, speak, for 50% off. And I'd love to see you there. As always, the latest security news is over at nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All of our podcasts are available on iTunes, on the TuneIn app, uh, via RSS, or at soundcloud.com slash sophossecurity. Until next time, stay secure.